This is Inside Politics, Election 2022. I'm Steve Harrison. The two candidates for North Carolina's 14th Congressional District join us today, Democrat Jeff Jackson and Republican Pat Harrigan. Their differences will certainly be clear, but they also have something in common. Both served in Afghanistan. The 14th is a new district that covers southern Mecklenburg and much of Gaston County. It's also a district that could be redrawn for the 2024 election. I'll talk to Jackson later in the podcast. First up is Harrigan, talking to my colleague Tim Funk. Thanks, Steve. Pat Harrigan grew up in California and Wyoming before heading to West Point. He graduated with a degree in nuclear engineering and served 18 months in Afghanistan. He moved to North Carolina to complete his special forces training. Harrigan and his wife now run a company in Burke County that manufactures handguns and semi-automatic military-style rifles. He says the U.S.'s chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan helped inspire him to run for Congress. Welcome, Pat. Thanks for having me, Tim. I appreciate it. Let me just start by asking, uh, you're a first-time candidate running to represent the people of North Carolina's newest congressional district. What's your pitch? Uh, what? Why should voters in the 14th send you to Washington? Well, look, I got involved in this race because I became very passionate about the exit from Afghanistan, just like you said. And I realized that we were on our way and have leaders in this country that are leading us down the road to failed outcomes. And that outcome, um, those outcomes are actually cascading across our society right now. It started with Afghanistan. That's where I got switched on. But I also realized, oh, my gosh. Look at the last, you know, 20 months. Uh, we've got problems with our economy. We have problems with inflation. We have problems at the southern border. We have issues with our energy independence. Uh, we have significant concerns here locally about our educational system and, and crime. Um, you know, we are really far down this road towards these failed outcomes. And I need to do something more than, you know, just go throughout my day-to-day running my businesses and uh, being a a good husband and a a good father to my kids. And I can do more. Uh, Therefore, here I am. So we'll get into some of those issues. I'd like to ask a little more of your your background. Sure. Very interesting. Uh, But first, uh, I got to ask you a basic question. Do you live in the district? Do you and your family live in the district? You don't have to under the law, but I'm just curious where. We do. We live down in South Park and, okay. and have since well before the primary in this race. And we've had a few problems across North Carolina since I came here about 10 years ago. Uh, but yes, we are, are residents of Mecklenburg okay. County and live and reside in South Park. Not in Hickory. No, we have a home up there on the lake, but we've also had places at other parts of the state and uh, up until as recent as last year. So, well, you know, the reason I bring it up is because your opponent, Jeff Jackson, has uh, made an issue of you voting in Mecklenburg County because he says your permanent domicile is not here, at least yet. Um, Had you said you were going to move here if you win permanently or? I think that might have been an earlier conversation with Steve, but really that was more along the lines of. Look, we have a very unique situation here in North Carolina with respect to the state of our maps. And because the state Supreme Court drew our maps for this particular election cycle, the state is going to redraw those maps again immediately after this election. What I was explaining to Steve was that I am hesitant to purchase a permanent home in Mecklenburg before I figure out what those new maps look like, regardless of the outcome of this election. Because what the last thing that I want to have happen is buy a forever home and then find I'm outside of the district that I'm supposed to be in. So we, my wife and I's intent are to become full time 
homeowners in Mecklenburg County, uh, but currently we live in an apartment, and uh, but our residency is. But do you South feel Park. like you're voting here now? If, if there's if, any question as to yeah. whether I'm going to be voting in Mecklenburg County for this election, I will see you guys at the polls. Okay. Well, let me let me ask you a little bit more about your background. You do have a pretty interesting background. Talk about uh, that your life experiences and how uh, you figure they will figure in your service in Congress if you're elected. So I'm 35. And I have had a very unique experience in, in my life uh, growing up. I split time, like you said, between San Diego, California, a small town in Wyoming. I like to tell people that I was <clears throat> schooled and played sports down in California, uh, but I got my character out of Wyoming. And I have a brother that's got uh, some very serious special needs that couldn't be addressed in Wyoming. Otherwise, my family likely would, you know, would have been raised there. But I ended up getting a nomination uh, from Senator Dianne Feinstein out there in California to attend West Point. A Democrat. A Democrat, yes. <laughs> uh, but uh, went to the academy, as you said, majored in nuclear engineering, uh, got into the infantry, spent some time in Afghanistan, really conducting a very classical special forces mission in Afghanistan. Had a very small combat outpost uh, north of Kandahar a little ways. Uh, and as a 23-year-old, was in charge of 40 Americans and 300 Afghans at this small little combat outpost with no roads to it. I had no oversight within 60 miles of me. And so leveraged that, decided to move into the special forces. Uh, That's how we came here to North Carolina. And then my wife and I simultaneous with our service started a business in our little double wide trailer outside of Fayetteville, North Carolina. And over the last six years, we've grown it to about 120,000 square foot facility on 80 acres. uh, As you mentioned, up in Burke County, uh, employing Uh, a lot of North Carolinians here and just having a heck of an experience. I know what it means to sign the front of a paycheck. I know what it means to pay my employees before I pay myself. And I just, I I think that I've got a unique perspective and I have a unique set of experiences that qualify me for this job at this particular time in our nation's history. So you um, got a degree in nuclear engineering. Not everybody could do that. Uh, Why why not go into that? Why go into Well, Tim, that's actually a really good question. So when I was at West Point, I had no idea what I might want to do post-military. And I actually really wanted to spend a career in the military. Um, So I I didn't know what I ought to study. So I figured that if I got a degree in nuclear engineering, and I've always been interested in, you know, physics and math and and theoretical things, uh, but that if I had that degree in nuclear engineering, once I figured out what I wanted to do, nobody would tell me that I'm too stupid to do it. And that has largely... Uh, been true in my life. And so I think that was a good call. Okay. So uh, one more question about Afghanistan. Um, so did, do you think we should still be there? Uh, what, what's your... No, I think we should have gotten out a long time before we ended up getting oh. out. Uh, my frustration with Afghanistan is how we ended the war. You know, one of the reasons that we all sign up to fight and, and you know, as you get older, you, you appreciate this, particularly as you start to have kids. I wanted to serve and I wanted to fight post 9-11 so that my kids don't have to. And the problem with the way that we left Afghanistan is that it it almost certainly means that we're going to be fighting again in the future. When America fails to lead, the -hmm. world burns. How should have we done it, gotten out? We should have gotten out a lot sooner. Um, That is... To avoid the chaos, how would you ever avoid the chaos? Well, look, I think that... Any special operator will tell you what we should have done is we should have just paid the Afghan warlords uh, that controlled certain portions of the country um, and to keep that 
to keep their influence strong regionally such that they were forever aligned with the interests, strategic interests of the United States government as opposed to aligned with the Taliban whose interests are averse to ours. Obviously, they, they sponsor and provide safe haven to terrorists. Uh, that's a very different situation that ended up prevailing. And that's a, honestly, we could talk about that for two yeah. hours, Tim. You said that we should have paid off the warlords. Explain that a little bit more. Why are the lower warlords good? Are they good? <laughs> <laughs> good is relative <laughs> okay. Okay. in a lot of places around the world. Um, there are influential folks that exist in Afghanistan where they control certain portions of the country uh, that the Taliban does not have complete control over. Those individuals generally are receptive to American influence and American ideals, and they could have done a much better job of securing Afghanistan the Afghan way than America trying to create an Americanized solution in Afghanistan. You, you've said Biden was criminally incompetent in the way he exited Afghanistan, but you also say his incompetence continues as Russia attacks Ukraine. What do you say to those who credit Biden with uniting NATO this year and, you know, providing Ukraine with the weapons they need uh, against Putin and his invaders. If I'm providing a perspective from 300,000 feet and, and trying to actually be as nonpartisan as possible, one of the things that I find incredibly frustrating about our chief executive is that he bookended his political career on one side with the withdrawal out of Vietnam. And he allowed the exact same thing to happen as he was president with the withdrawal from Afghanistan. That retreat, that strategic weakness that was on display on behalf of the American people is what led directly to President Putin invading Ukraine. And any position that we might find ourselves in today that is demonstrably better than what we had expected when Russia initially invaded Ukraine is quite frankly an accident, and it's a miracle. But do you support what we're doing with Ukraine as a country? More or less, I do. I've, I am very much supportive of ample lethal aid to Ukraine. Mm -hmm. I think where we have a problem is that only 14% of our Congress today are veterans, mm -hmm. and only four of those individuals are special operations veterans. And so I believe we don't have a Congress that can actually hold our administration accountable today, and that causes a couple different problems. Number one, I think we're spending way more money than we need to to get the job done over there. And number two, I do not think that we're tying the money that we're spending to any type of strategic objective that ought to be fully understood by the American people at this juncture of the war. Uh, like a lot of Republicans this year, you focused on inflation. You mentioned it earlier, um, blaming President Biden and the Democrats for higher prices at the pump and in the grocery stores. If voters turn control of the House over to you and the GOP, what would you do to tame inflation and start sending these prices lower? That's a great question. Well, I'd start by stopping the federal government from spending money like a drunken sailor. I mean, we are absolutely addicted to spending every single dollar that we bring in and every single dollar that we print and create these days. And it has caused the underpinnings of our economy to become eroded, and it has caused this rampant inflation that is truly just socking it right to the gut of the middle class right now. We have to balance a budget in Congress. We have not done that for far too long, and the consequences are extremely severe. When we go from continuing resolution to continuing resolution as opposed to a hard and fast budget, 
What people don't understand is at any given time, 40% of our jets can't fly because of maintenance issues in the military. That's a national security concern, but because we can't forecast out what maintenance needs we have and actually put those into a hard and fast budget, they may or may not happen this year to may or may not solve that problem. Mm -hmm. That's an issue, let alone just from kind of a broader perspective, dumping a ton of money into the economy, um, which just directly leads to the inflationary pressures that we're seeing today. All of that, all of that has to stop. How much of that was because of the pandemic that getting people back on their feet? I think that's where, small business I think man. that's I think that's where it started. And look, I think that was very important to do. And I I, I think that that is a responsible role of government. I mean, if you're going to come in and you're going to shut people's companies down, you're going to darn need to pay for it. Okay. Uh, otherwise, there's going to be lots of catastrophic second, third order consequences that happen. The problem was, is we got addicted to our own drug and we kept doling it out. We kept doling out those dollars and we didn't stop. And at some point, uh, you got to pay the piper for that. And, and that's what we've been doing the last 12 months. And, and unfortunately, it looks like that's what we're going to continue to do with the inflation reports that came out today for quite some time moving forward. Okay. You own a business uh, we've talked about that makes handguns and semi-automatic style uh, rifles. Uh, what did you think of the bipartisan gun safety bill that Congress passed in June and President Biden signed? Both of North Carolina's U.S. senators supported it. One of them, Tom Tillis, helped craft it. How would you have voted? So I liked parts of the bill and I didn't like other parts of the bill. And I'll explain that. What I like about the bill is that it did the best job that it possibly could to without wholesaling, uh, whole, in, in, without in a wholesale fashion, carving up the rights uh, of ordinary law-abiding Americans. It very specifically attempted to address the issue that specifically caused Uvalde. How did the shooter that was behind Uvalde acquire a weapon when he had a derogatory history of running around Uvalde in his pickup truck, shooting people with a BB gun when he was 16 years old. I think almost all Americans agree that that gentleman should not have been able to acquire a weapon. Why was he able to? Well, it's because the way that our background system works, background check system works with the FBI. The day that you turn 18, those records don't communicate from the juvenile system into, you know, our, our larger, um, uh, criminal justice system that the FBI has any any purview over. And so when you run a background check as an 18-year-old, the FBI is treating you like you're one day old, mm. like you have nothing uh, derogatory on your record. The bill that was signed on a bipartisan basis did attempt to solve that problem, but there's still shortcomings with it. And one of those shortcomings is the fact that because these systems at the state level and the federal government don't communicate it's limited to a check of the state system in which the firearm is being purchased. A lot of people don't know this because you just have talking points on these bills and we, people don't actually read them. Well, I'm in the industry. I read the bill. It's only like 82 pages long. Um, that's an issue. So if somebody grew up in California, had a derogatory record out there up until the time that they were 14, but then moved to North Carolina, tried to purchase a gun when they're 18, the FBI is not going to find anything derogatory in North Carolina. So, Look, I think we need more folks that know more about this topic up in Congress. The thing that I don't like about this bill is I don't like the red flag. And, and honestly, mm -hmm. as I've talked to a lot of people in this district, Republicans, independents, and Democrats, there is serious concern about the concept of who gets to adjudicate somebody mentally defective and how quickly. Because I have not personally seen the implementation of a red flag law that does not provide for the serious possibility of impacting somebody's due process rights. 
Should an eight, should any 18-year-old be able to get military-style weapons? I think so. Okay. I do. And, you know, look, look at it this way. Um, when I was 18, if I hadn't have gone to West Point, I could have signed up and gone straight to Afghanistan. And people have this argument about, well, look, you can go fight for your country and you can go die and you come back here and you can't even drink because you're not 21. Uh, I think that we have the laws that we've had that we have in place and we've had them in place for a long time because that's kind of where everything has shaken out. I don't think that there's a, um, you know, an impetus at this point in time to, to have demonstrable change to that. So 18 year olds who go in the military are trained. Not not all 18 year olds are trained to, ha- to use these kind of weapons. Right. Sure. So should they be able to get them without training? I, I don't. I've never really thought that training has much to do with this topic. I think it's um, more, I I think it's more predicated towards, look, how many folks do we have across this country that are actually law-abiding and use firearms in in congruence with local, state, and federal law? Almost all of them. To deprive them of that right, to deprive tens of millions of Americans of their right to keep and bear arms because you've got one, two, or three bad apples that have murderous and homicidal intent, um, I think is the wrong way to solve the problem. Your opponent, Jeff Jackson, has pointed to a 2018 interview you did with an AR-15 podcast on the Firearms Radio Network. In it, you reportedly said that your business benefited from the increase in gun sales following the shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Connecticut. How would you explain this to, say, suburban voters in the 14th district worried, just worried about all the guns out there. So I don't remember that at all. Um, and I think this is just another example of performative politics, twisting words for somebody's benefit. In this case, my political opponent, what I have spoken about in the past that I could speak to today is that, look, there is not a single manufacturer of firearms in this country that has, uh, benefited from any type of, of violent incident in this country. Where the market goes crazy is when far radical leftists start talking about massive gun control uh, that spooks everybody. That is a reality, but there is never any way, shape or form that it would be disgusting to say that we profited from a mass shooting. That is just not reflective of reality, never will be reflective of reality. And, uh, is is just unfortunate in, in this political discord that we have today that it's presented that way. The analysts, you've seen them who handicap elections around the country, you know, likely this, likely that. Sure. They've been saying that the 14th district is likely to elect your Democratic opponent, noting that almost 58 percent of the voters now living in the district voted for Joe Biden, a Democrat in 2020. Why are they wrong about your prospects? I think they're wrong about these prospects primarily because you've seen this in uh, the national poll polling organizations that have laid out data from the beginning of this race. This race started as a D14, D15, D16, D17, depending on where you got your information from. One of the reasons I got into this race, because I knew it was never that ever. And what folks looked at is they looked at the performance of President Trump within this particular geography during the 2020 election. What they did not look at is they did not look at down-ballot Republican candidates that weren't President Trump. This district, this geographical area that now makes up this district, even though we now have Gaston County, which is very red, 
they had a serious problem with the former president. I think the data is very clear about that. I do not think that this district is unwilling to elect a Republican. Okay. Let me ask you about former President Trump. Should he run for the White House again in 2024? I am laser focused on 2022. Okay. I actually don't want to focus on 2020 nor 2024 because it's not right now. It's not what we've okay. got right in front of us uh, okay. coming up on November 8th. I think I've read that you've indicated you were not a fan of his some of his personal behaviors, but that you did agree with him on some policies and issues. Any that you can mention? Yeah, I certainly share President Trump's perspective, at least a portion of his perspective on our southern border. I absolutely believe our southern border is a very real and present danger for the national security of this country. What a lot of people don't understand is that every single day we intercept 10 folks from the terrorist watch list trying to enter this country. 10. Hmm. That's right from Department of Homeland Security's website. Now, a lot of those are coming in by air and we're intercepting them appropriately, but not all of them are. Just in May of this year, we intercepted 15 folks on the terrorist watch list who had already crossed the southern border illegally. And those are the ones that we know of. What about the ones we don't? Okay. What is, what's their intent? And, and so ultimately, I absolutely believe we need to secure our southern border and we need to gain, regain control of our immigration system. That being said, this is where I diverge. We have a massive labor crisis in this country right now. And quite frankly, we are wasting the best opportunity that we have had in the last 50 years to regenerate and regrow the American manufacturing capability, domestic manufacturing, because we don't have any labor to support it. We have to have an ample flow of immigrants into this country. I would like to see comprehensive immigration reform, and I'd like to see my Republican colleagues start to um, change the flow of the river on this topic. Because any business owner knows it's incredibly expensive, it's incredibly difficult, involves attorneys and a lot of time to get qualified labor into this country. We have the technology to make that much faster today. And our country needs it, quite frankly, to be much more responsive to the modern economy and all of its ails that we currently have right now. So I'm, I'm very pro-immigration. So that's, that's a difference from, from Trump. What about a pathway to citizenship? There has to be a pathway to citizenship. Look, from my perspective, uh, you look at countries that have rounded up um, and, and exported people from their country. It's a list of countries that we don't want to be involved with. It's Russia. It's North Korea. It's China. It is Nazi Germany. Um, this horse has left the stables on this topic. And the vast, vast majority of immigrants that have come to this country are here because they're trying to build a better life for themselves and for their families. And you fast-track um, the dreamers? I think we need to look at exactly how we do that, but I'm not opposed to it. Okay. I do think it's incredibly important that we have to gain control of the southern border and gain control of our immigration system first prior to allowing any type of uh, you know assimilation program on a okay. widespread basis critically important that we right. do that one, two step. But I think this is why there's a lot of hope because Republicans want to secure the border from a national security perspective. I think Democrats really want to overhaul uh, immigration. And I, I think both sides can actually get a win here. Does that mean finishing Donald Trump's wall? Yeah, I do think it does mean that. Okay. Absolutely. And President Biden just restarted it three weeks ago. So I, I think, look, I really do think we're all coming to a part, a point here where we could really solve this problem. Okay.
Polls say a majority of your fellow Republicans do not believe Joe Biden really won the 2020 election. Uh, you've expressed some concern for vote, uh, for election security and uh, support voter ID requirements. Is is Biden uh, our legitimate president? Yeah, President Biden's our legitimate president. We need to stop focusing backwards in the Republican Party and we need to start focusing forwards. And if we are focused on things that happened in the past, we will lose the elections that are right before us coming up in November. Okay. I also believe that just from my experience around the world, dealing with people in the military and the special forces in business, if there's the opportunity to commit fraud, people will do it. And so I think we do need a bipartisan effort to lock down the sanctity and security of our election systems. Um, now that the Supreme Court has overturned Roe v. Wade, what should happen with abortion? One GOP group called you a pro-life champion. Uh, do you support a national ban after 15 weeks, which is the aim of Senator Lindsey Graham's legislation? Mm -hmm. Should there be exceptions for rape and incest? Where do you fall down on this issue? So personally, I am pro-life with the three major exceptions. And we just had a, a, an ad put out by Jeff Jackson that uh, in the Democratic Party of Mecklenburg that says that uh, I don't agree with any exceptions and I actually want to prosecute women um, that would potentially break the law. Uh, that is just completely untrue. And, and this is a, a series of untruths that we have been dealing with throughout this election. Um, you know, quite frankly, uh, just disinformation, uh, which is very frustrating. So look, I'm pro-life. I am for the three exceptions of rape, incest, and life of the mother. I always have been. I've never changed that uh, position. I, I likely never will. That being said, I do applaud the Supreme Court for making the decision that they made reversing Roe. That was one of the most highly politicized decisions the court had ever made. And quite frankly, what reversing it did is it corrected errant federal law. We have an obligation to correct errant federal law across this land. And what we did is we took a decision that was made by the hands of an unelected judiciary. And we took the power of that decision making and we returned it to the hands of the people which is exactly where it belongs in each individual state. To answer your question very directly, I do not think that the federal government needs to be involved any further at this point in time. What should the state, what should the state legislature do, do you think? I think it should do whatever the people vote that it should do. I mean, have a referendum on it or the I mean, citizens now it's at 20 weeks. So the the and, and, and look, just for, for, for what it's worth, this is my perspective as okay. a, as a newcomer and okay. a, an outsider to politics. I do not think that there exists a desire to change anything from where it is right now within the state. It's okay. been said that there's desire for bans, that there's desire for this, that, or the other. Honestly, that is political fear mongering that has been done by the Democrats I do not think that that support is there. I quite frankly feel that the vast majority of my Republican colleagues really want the federal government to play a smaller role in our day-to-day -day lives and government in general to play a smaller role in our day-to-day -day lives than it has currently for the last 10 years. Jeff Jackson has an issue with one of your ads. Uh, um, <laughs> he, uh, you claim that Jeff Jackson favored giving your tax dollars to terrorists, uh, including the Boston Marathon bomber. I think your premise was that Jackson supported the multi-billion dollar American Rescue Plan, which did a lot of things like send stimulus checks. 
to millions of Americans, including some inmates. It was a big bill. Jackson's a veteran like you. He wasn't in Congress to vote for it. And the Boston Marathon bomber didn't get to keep the money. I think a judge said it had to go to the victim families. So was the ad fair and did it offer voters enough information? <laughs> yeah. I think what's ironic about this situation is that Jeff Jackson is missing the main point of an ad that's titled simple. Look, the main point of this ad is not giving tax dollars to the Boston Marathon bomber, which did happen and it is disgusting and it is abhorrent. The main point of this ad is to highlight what are the key issues on the ballot this November for the voters of the 14th district. If you like runaway spending, mm -hmm. endless government handouts, Jeff Jackson is your guy. He will contribute and continue to contribute to the inflationary pressures that are destroying this country. Mm -hmm. And if you want to reinvigorate our economy and you want less inflation, then you need to vote for Pat Harrigan. That's the main point out of all of this. And I understand that the Jeff Jackson camp has a problem with this ad, and that's really kind of gotten under their craw. But I would challenge Jeff Jackson with this. Do you or do you not support the American Rescue Plan? Would you have been the only Democrat in Congress to vote against it? It was voted 100% along party line. Would you retract the statement that you gave to the Charlotte Observer two days ago in support, full support of the American Rescue Plan when that ad came out? The answer is no. Okay. It wouldn't. And that plan gave money to prisoners that gave money to the Boston Marathon bomber. He might think it's annoying and frustrating and terribly politically inconvenient, but he should reconsider his political positions next time. I want to add with a kind of a fun question. Sure. Um, I don't think I saw the word Republican on your campaign website, but I did see that your two very cute young daughters are named Reagan and McKinley. <laughs> Also, the names of two Republican presidents, were they named for the 25th and 40th presidents? They sure were, Tim. You can tell I've been a lifelong Democrat. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's a great. Two very incredible individuals uh, with amazing stories and that are certainly part of our nation's history. Okay. Well, thank you for being with us today and, and talking to our listeners. Hey, thanks for having me. I truly appreciate the opportunity. Joining me now is Mecklenburg State Senator Jeff Jackson, who's running in the 14th District. He served in the Army Reserves in Afghanistan and is now a major in the North Carolina National Guard. He's an attorney, and he was appointed to the state Senate in 2014 to replace Dan Clodfelter, who'd become Charlotte's mayor in the wake of the Patrick Cannon scandal. He ran for this year's open U.S. Senate seat, but left the race in December, clearing the path for Sherry Beasley to win the Democratic primary. And now he's running for Congress in that new 14th district, which includes half of Mecklenburg and most of Gaston County. Cal Cunningham won this district by nearly 11 percentage points against Tom Tillis two years ago, which means Jackson is the favorite. Senator Jackson, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So I want to go back uh, 20 years to 2002 after 9-11. You volunteered to serve. Tell me about that. Well, I was 19. I was able-bodied. I thought that my country was sort of turning to me in that moment and saying, hey, it's your turn to go serve overseas. And so I I went to uh, the local recruiting station, which was in a strip mall next to a subway, and I ate a meatball sub and I sort of thought about this and made sure I wanted to do it. And then I went next door and opened up the door to the recruiting station. I still remember there was a recruiter sitting in the back and he jumped to his feet and he hit the table and he said, we've been waiting for you, son. 
And uh, that was it. Did basic training at Fort Sill, Oklahoma, and did advanced training at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and then was sent to Afghanistan, where I spent um, a little more than 11 months there. So I want to fast forward now to President Biden uh, pulling out the final soldiers from Afghanistan. And as a veteran who, who was there, what did you think about that personally? And then what did you think from kind of a strategic political viewpoint about his decision? The decision to leave was the right one. And I think there are sort of two separate conversations here. There's the manner in which we left the last three or four months. And there were some serious problems there that we all saw. And then there's the larger decision about finally deciding that we were not going to see the the success of the mission that was stated after we uh, sort of kicked out al-Qaeda and said, now we're going to bring a democracy to Afghanistan. And I was there from 2005 to 2006. And in retrospect, the mission was essentially complete as of that time. We were not going to bring a successful democracy to Afghanistan, which makes sense if you think about it. It's such a poor country. The terrain is is so inhospitable. It's landlocked. The notion that we were going to be able to do this without a 50-year commitment was probably never realistic. And going forward, we should all try and be much more realistic before we undertake these kinds of missions. And so when you were there in 2005, 2006, did you realize at the time that well, the mission's over, things aren't going to get any better? No, I'm not going to say that because I was, look, I was a real low-ranking soldier and I had a very specific job and it was my job to go outside the wire with uh, my buddies and run these missions. And I did not have a strategic level perspective on the conflict. I was, you know, 21, 22 years old. Do you remember kind of a time or a year when when you came back to the to the States and kind of looked back on it and thought, this is, uh, it is what it is. Uh, do you remember that moment? No, I don't remember that moment, frankly. I'm sure it took years for it for it to become as clear as it became. In retrospect, it should have been clearer sooner for me and for our political leadership. You started serving in the state Senate in 2014, and then you jumped in the U.S. Senate race uh, in early 2021. And then in December, uh, you decided to drop out of the race, kind of clearing the way for Sherry Beasley. Do you have any regrets at all? I mean, even if they're just fleeting moments when you look at this race and think uh, if, if you'd stayed in. Not a one, because I don't think it would have changed anything. If you recall, the reason that I got out, which I said very clearly at the time, was that I thought Sherry Beasley was very likely to win the primary. And if I had stayed in, she was going to be very likely to win the primary. And I just felt like I would have been a jerk to stay in, force her to spend a bunch of money, extend the primary for essentially another six months. So deprive her six months of being the, the general election nominee. To what end? It just would not have, have served a purpose. No, look, I think she's got an excellent chance of winning this thing. She is all over the state. I'm proud of her. I'm proud to support her. And I think she's going to pull it off. Uh, so let's say you you do win this race. Uh, what kind of congressman are you going to be? I mean, who would you, in terms of like different groups, would you align yourself with in Washington and, and inside the Democratic caucus? I don't know. I haven't really thought much about group alignment. I think I would probably be pretty similar to who I've been as a state senator, right? I've been a state senator for eight years, so I'd probably take most of that ethos and that temperament with me, although I imagine it's just everything's moving 10 times faster in D.C. So I'm going to try and be very conscious if we're fortunate enough to win this thing to take some some amount of time, some number of weeks to just get your bearings, 
slow everything down as much as you can and understand that um, the fastballs here are just a lot faster. Well, let me kind of rephrase. I'll ask that question a slightly different way. I mean, looking back over the past two years with uh, with President Biden in office, Democrats in control, is there a vote or a decision that they've made that if you were in Congress at the time, you would have gone the other way on? I'm sure there is because there have been hundreds and hundreds of these. I'm sort of familiar with the really big ticket items here. So the Inflation Reduction Act, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill, some of the major civil rights pieces of legislation to end gerrymandering the John Lewis Act. I would be voting for that legislation. I know that. So kind of no big ticket items that that went through. I mean, like you said, there are a lot of small things possibly, but and the big ticket items, you would be with the party and the president as far as you can you can remember. Well, Steve, there have only been like five big, big ticket items. I mean, there haven't been because of the way the filibuster works and reconciliation, it sort of condenses all of these bills into these hundred billion dollar bills, which is not the ideal way to legislate, frankly. But because of the current rules, it's sort of that or nothing. Um, so there haven't been that many bites at the apple so far. Gotcha. Well, let me go through a couple issues. In the Senate debate, Sherry Beasley was asked about abortion. I'm just going to use her kind of an example springboard for this question. She said she would support the Roe framework with restrictions after that. And is that is that where where you fall? And if so, what would those restrictions be? Are there anything you're comfortable with? Well, I think she's right about the Roe framework. I sort of picture this when I, the restriction versus rights conversation to me comes back to the purpose of Roe, which was to establish a rights minimum, sort of a floor of basic rights that people would have across all 50 states. Once establishing that floor, states can take a different approach. A lot of folks after Roe said, oh, this is good because now the states can take 50 different approaches. Well, they could before but there was a bare minimum of rights that had to be respected. I think that's the right approach. I guess I ask, let's say hypothetically, if, if the Democrats, there is a future point when uh, they put forth, a, let's say, a uh, like you said, a floor, a nationwide floor of viability at 25 weeks, let's say, or 24 weeks, then with restrictions after that, uh, is that something you could ever get behind? Well, I, I think the wording here is going to be really important. When you say restrictions after that, I don't know exactly what that means. What I would support is codifying the protections of Roe, which I interpret to be a bare minimum set of rights after which states have flexibility. I did a story, uh, I spoke to Pat Harrigan, your opponent in, in this in this race back in May and asked him about uh, abortion. He said he was I mean, he, he is uh, anti-abortion rights, clearly. But he said he he does support exemptions for rape, incest and the life of the mother. But I think there is a mailer on your behalf, I think, from this, the county, the Mecklenburg Democratic Party, saying that he doesn't support those exceptions. Um, do you know where that came from and, and your views of, of what what he thinks on abortion? Well, my understanding is that now that Roe has been eliminated, states are free to eliminate, to ban abortion with no exceptions for rape, for incest, for the life of the mother. And we have people running for state legislature, as I'm sure you well know, in North Carolina, advocating for that position. I think what concerns me about my opponent's position is that he is OK with states saying that we are going to fully ban because that is what overturning Roe means. It means states can fully ban without respect for any of those exceptions, which, by the way, is happening in states across the country right now in certain states. But I guess, is it fair? I mean, my, my point is um, Congress could very well be voting on national abortion legislation. 
And, um, you know, that if he says, well, he's for exemptions for rape, life, rape, incest and life of the mother, that, well, he says what he says and that that he wouldn't that he wouldn't support that. I guess that's what I'm getting at. I mean, it is a big distinction. It's a very big deal. I think his problem there is that he's speaking out of two sides of his mouth. I understand that it's become very unpopular for members of his party to talk about this and not be in favor of those exceptions. But on the other hand, I know he's in favor of overturning Roe, which ex- would open the door to bands that don't give way to those exceptions. So I think he's trying to have it both ways on this. Are you kind of saying that that if if someone supports what the Supreme Court did with Dobbs, that they're ruling, that then kind of therefore – they are you can make a link that they're against exceptions for for rape and incest because that's what it, some states can do. Does that make sense? Well, we had a legal protection against states uh, banning abortion in those cases. And that legal that legal protection was Roe. And now that that's gone, it has directly opened the door to what we're seeing other states doing in banning without respect for those exceptions. And we have state legislators in North Carolina who would like to do the exact same thing. So um, on the subject of, uh, of, of negative ads, your opponent, Pat Harrigan, has one out against you. Talking about domestic terrorism, I am going to let you address that right now. Well, we knew there was going to be attack ad because I, I think he perceives himself to be behind in this race. There are attack ads, and then there is level 10 crazy. And what he chose to do, I think to his detriment, honestly, is go level 10 crazy and suggest that I am a supporter of domestic terrorism. And not only is it on its face absurd, um, but he is saying that about someone who literally enlisted after September 11th, who served in Afghanistan, who continues to serve. I'm a major in the National Guard. I have drilled this weekend. And for him to run this ad saying Jeff supports domestic terrorism is literally all that people should have to know about, about who he is. And what his vision of politics is, what politics, what doing politics means to him, I think can be expressed in total by his willingness to run that type of level 10 crazy attack ad. Were you surprised that the level 10, as you call it, the level 10? That yeah, I thought he was going to do like a level six or seven crazy, but he went level 10 because I'm sure I can tell you exactly what happened. His consultant said, hey, look, we're going to lose this thing, Pat, and we got to throw an 80 yard I mean, we got to really make a lot of distance up on this. You can only afford to do one ad. And so it's got to cut deep. And they said, all right, let's go level 10 crazy. And I think it's going to backfire as level 10 crazy often does and as it should. So Pat Harrigan, he manufactures and sells handguns and assault style rifles. You've called him out of that on called him out of that in your fundraising. And so let's talk about gun control. Um, I know that you support kind of the overall concept of gun control, but is there a point at which you would stop and say uh, that that people should be allowed to have a certain type of weapon? Uh, what would that be? That's a real broad question, Steve. I mean, I, I don't have a, a list of the types of weapons, um, but well, I mean, I, I mean, respect the yeah, fact we, that we don't the need specific types, but for, yeah. I mean, I, I respect the fact that, that the Second Amendment provides for the ownership of weapons, and it's going to be a, a wide variety of weapons. I guess my my real opposition, my bone of contention in this debate is that the NRA has an ability to shut it down completely. Ultimately, it's not, in my experience in eight years in the state Senate, this has not been a debate about which reforms do we prefer, which weapons do we prefer. The entire question is a threshold one of are we going to be allowed to do anything at all? 
So for instance, when we filed a bill to ban bump stocks, bump stocks are definitively not protected by the Second Amendment. There is no Second Amendment, Second Amendment protection to uh, add a, a piece of equipment to a semi-automatic rifle that makes it effectively an automatic. There's no Second Amendment protection for this. It was not even allowed to come to a hearing in a committee because the NRA let it be known that that was not going to occur. That's where we're at in this debate. It's really not the place of, hey, let's start listing weapons. We can't even get to a hearing in a committee on whether or not we should ban bump stocks. And that's not even a Second Amendment question. That's not even a Second Amendment question. And when you ran for Senate, you were you campaigned heavily, 100 county tour. You went big counties, small counties. Um, but I want to ask, is that enough, is showing up enough, or does a Democrat to win a statewide federal race in North Carolina, do they kind of have to do more? I mean, do they have to break with the party on some important issues and show unaffiliated voters in these places that that they're different? I mean, I'm kind of thinking back to how Bill Clinton ran in 1992 when he— It's an interesting question. I think— I see what you're driving at here, and I think what you have to do is show voters sincerity, and one form that sincerity can take is breaking with your party because voters have a pretty good sense that, well, he's paying, he or she is paying a political price to do that, so they must really believe what they're doing right now because they're paying a political price. We know that. We can see that. So that's one way to establish sincerity. Uh, yeah, I would grant you that. That's probably not the only way. I think personalizing a race is really important. The reason why going to 50, uh, um, 50 counties, 100 counties is really important is because it allows you to introduce yourself in a personal way. Once people have gotten a sense of who you are as a person, it becomes much harder for them to believe the worst about you. For instance, that you support domestic terrorism. <laughs> right. Sure. Yeah. No, I, I just wonder if that's halfway. I mean, if that's 50 or 60 percent of it, because I'm going to ask about there was a time in the legislature, um, a big issue in North Carolina has been, you know, the state Supreme Court. Um, they ruled on the two constitutional amendments, photo ID and the income tax repeal. You know, they revealed that the rule that the, the racially gerrymandered legislature was in the wrong to put those on the ballot. And this case has been going on a long time. And back three years ago, I think you were one of the only Democrats. You kind of criticized that idea. I think you called it, um, you know, that it wasn't an appropriate judicial rem remedy, wasn't workable. Uh, you wrote that if the legislature can't pass constitutional amendments, then maybe it shouldn't be able to pass laws. Um, that puts you apart from the party. Do you still feel that way? I do. I don't think the way you look, I am the number one opponent of gerrymandering. The very first bill I ever filed was to end gerrymandering. That said, I think the precedent is very difficult if you say if you allow the court to say, well, this General Assembly, the state legislature uh, was a gerrymandered state legislature. So among the hundreds of laws that they passed, we will select those that we feel need to be struck down. I think the better remedy is to say, here's a new map to have the court say you are unconstitutionally comprised because of gerrymandering. Here's a new map. Under the next election, we will have a fair composition within our state legislature. And now they have the power to, if they want, go back and undo anything that the legislature did. I just don't see a, a workable precedent for having the court itself being the one reaching back and saying, well, we're going to strike down laws one, two, three, but let these others stand. I think that's really tricky stuff.
Now, but then, but then when the big ruling came down in August, when the state Supreme Court decided this, uh, I don't think you kind of made those same comments on social media. I, maybe I'm wrong. I, don't, I didn't hear them. I mean, did the party kind of lean on you and ask you, say, like, because, you know, you were giving some bipartisan cover to this opposition. Did they kind of ask you to keep quiet on this one? No, nope. never heard from them on it. Even like activists and other people who just Zero said. Zero people. Literally, Steve, you're the first person to mention this to me in several years. You know, I just asked because, uh, like I said, you, this was a this was a very I mean, big deal. I, I get yeah. why you would ask, but I'm, and I could see that conversation happening in a hypothetical realm. I'm not saying it's implausible that it would, but in point of fact, it did not. You're the first person to mention this to me in a really long time. So why didn't you talk about it this time? And when the Supreme Court weighed in, well, because I was already on record. Gotcha. Well, let's see. You, you mentioned gerrymandering. I want to talk about the two maps. The the map that you are running on now. We've got uh, really only one toss-up seat, right, in the triangle. Uh, the others are all kind of safe seats. But the map beforehand that the Republicans, their first attempt at a redraw uh, was the 644 map. With um, There were six Republican seats, four Democratic seats, four toss-up seats. And a lot of people in the Democratic Party did not want that map. And, and, and But there's some people who said, this is pretty good, four toss-up seats in 2022, that's what we all want. I mean, what was your thought? Was that old map? Was that old map good? I have no idea, Steve. I don't remember at all. There was a ton of map drawing in that time, and I didn't take any of it too seriously because none of it was going to affect me. I was running for Senate. I thought there was basically no chance that I would end up running for Congress, and I don't remember. I, if I had a strong opinion about the first map, Steve, I don't recall. Yeah, no, it was just a, uh, like I said, the first uh, Republican attempt was a gerrymander. Gave them the advantage in 10 seats. Um, and then they did a redraw and there were four toss ups. And a lot of people felt like, hey, this is what we want. We, we you know, people should have to fight in the middle as opposed to to the two uh, to the two bases. Um, one thing about this seat that Republicans have, this is the new 14th seat and you're favored to win. Republicans have kind of said, I think Dallas Woodhouse said, well, if Jeff Jackson wins, then maybe he should rent and not buy. Do you expect them to to come after you and come after your seat and try and redraw it? Yes. <laughs> and so why I mean, did look, you? If, if yeah. they have the ability to, why why wouldn't yeah. they? Like, the, like you just said, the first version of the map had 10 Republicans and three Democrats. If they have the ability to come after, well, if they have the ability to redraw to their heart's content, if they have a blank check, um, they're going to come after every single Democrat they can. And I'm just on that list. And did that ever, did you ever consider not running because, you know, like, well, we're going to have to move our family, go to Washington, D.C., and then in two years I could be gerrymandered out? No. I mean, look, you can get a lot of good work done in two years, and and that's the plan. I've got a game plan for things that I think would really make a difference to this district. I'll go and I'll do my level best. If it ends up being two years, then I'm going to show people how good a member of Congress they can have for two years, and so be it. And I want to ask, uh, Jeff, one more about kind of the idea of the breaking from the party. A big issue last year was at the state was this issue of in-person schooling. Um, and the Republicans put forth, uh, they, you know, put forth a bill to require schools during during the pandemic to have some form of in-person instruction. There were a few Democrats who broke ranks and voted with the Republicans on that. You did not. You stayed with the party. Um, I mean, given what we've seen with the test scores and the learning loss, especially among black and Hispanic students, do you think we should have gotten kids back in school sooner? I think if we could do it all over again, we would make some different decisions. 
I think operating on the information that we had at the time, particularly with respect to a non-vaccine environment, being concerned about transmission to teachers and transmission to family members, particularly elderly family members, those are the people that we had in mind. Protecting their lives was the top priority when making those decisions in a pre-vaccine environment. But there's no uh, looking back at your vote. I mean, ultimately, you did vote to reopen schools in favor of the bill once some there were a couple of accommodations made. But um, uh, but you don't think that the that the Democrats were too slow uh, or too reluctant to, to reopen in-person schools sooner? I think there's a bit of history being rewritten here because Republicans have an incentive to do that during a campaign season. The reality is for the vast majority of the time when we were remote instruction, that was bipartisan consensus. At the very end, we knew that we were about when the vaccine started to roll out. We knew we were going to start to reopen, and there was a a negotiation between Republicans and Democrats about how to do that. In my view, Republicans poison-pilled the first version because they wanted Democrats to vote no so they could use it for the election. And as soon as they got that, they turned around and they gave us the version that we had already agreed to, which was simply about high schools, ultimately. We had sort of agreed on 90%, and I think what they wanted to do was get us on record voting no. And sure enough, they're running all the mail that we thought that they would run, but I don't think they wanted us to vote for that bill. I think they were hoping that we would do the responsible thing, and we did. And then a few weeks later, they came back to us with the bill that we had sort of already agreed on, and that passed. That's what's actually happened here. Because I remember one of the issues at the time was uh, that, that the Democratic caucus wanted kind of a guarantee of six feet separation in the classroom. Uh, and that was a big sticking point. And then ultimately the bill, I mean, there was nothing. I think the governor was given the ability to close districts on an emergency basis. But another big thing was the six feet between desks and the bill that was ultimately passed that you and Democrats voted for. I mean, it didn't have the six feet. And so what was the, um, you know, what changed during that period? I think the major change was allowing schools the autonomy Uh, particularly for high schools, local school districts, to make changes if there were surges, I think was the big deal, the big disagreement. I've talked about a couple of those issues with the party. Going back in your time in Raleigh, what would you say have have been your biggest in terms of legislative accomplishments and what you're most proud of? Most of the work I was able to get done came out of the Judiciary Committee. I'm a former criminal prosecutor from Gaston County, so I had a little bit of credibility on those issues. And frankly, as a member of the minority party, it's nearly impossible to get a bill passed that actually spends money. Uh, so through the Judiciary Committee, uh, you can get laws passed that don't come with an appropriation, that don't come with any money spent. So things like reforming expunction law, reforming sex offense law, uh, finally closing a loophole that we had with our rape law. Uh, we were the last state in the country that said a woman could not revoke consent to have sex once sex had begun. Uh, worked on that for several years before we were able to get that closed. And uh, on that issue with the consent law and the loophole, um, I remember Danny Britt at the time, he shepherded that through. But Danny's criticism, he's a state representative, was that uh, he had said that you wanted it, uh, you were using it as a cudgel against Republicans. And that uh, he says that the, the final bill came together after a different group came forward to move it. Is, is that fair at all? No. Here's what actually happened. I filed it my very first year there, I think, or maybe my second year there. I filed it early in my time as a state senator. It went nowhere. I filed it a second time. Nowhere. A third time. Nowhere. A fourth time. 
This time I went to the press and I said, look, they're not even giving this a hearing. This is morally reprehensible. And at that point, it got national press. And at that point, Republicans said, oh, crap, we have to actually pass this bill. So on the last day of session for the year, they amended another existing bill on the Senate floor, which is a very rare maneuver to include this protection. They didn't want it to go through committee because they were worried some of their members would vote against it because they are very conservative. So they put it in a bill with other sex offense stuff that they knew everybody had to vote for. And it would never have happened if we hadn't gotten the national press's attention. All right, Senator, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Take care. All right. So that was State Senator Jeff Jackson. Earlier, Tim, you spoke to Pat Harrigan. We'll discuss those conversations in a minute. But first, a quick clarification on bump stocks that Jackson brought up. Bump stocks enable semi-automatic weapons to shoot like a machine gun. While Congress has not passed legislation to ban bump stocks, they are illegal. The Trump administration banned bump stocks by reclassifying them under legislation that prohibits machine guns. The U.S. Supreme Court this month declined to hear a challenge to rulings that upheld that decision. There's still an effort to ban them legislatively in case another administration determines that bump stocks are not covered by existing law. Tim, I think it's important to look at this 14th district race by looking at the numbers. Cal Cunningham won this district by 11 percentage points over Tom Tillis two years ago. That would suggest the Democrats are going to win it again. I think there are some longtime Republican voters in this district who moved away from the party during Trump. Pat Harrigan will try and win them back. But this is probably Jeff Jackson's race to lose. You're probably right. But the big question this year, I think, is will there be a red wave? Unlike two years ago when Cal Cunningham was running, uh, we have a Democratic president now and inflation is off the charts. And so I think if there's a district that may potentially go Republican and surprise people, this would be it. Um, I I wouldn't put my money on it, but... Uh, I think the latest polls say maybe uh, Jackson's up by five, which is uh, less than Cal Cunningham. Yeah, I think uh, I think probably the Dobbs decision did push this district more, you know, from the lean Democratic to the safe, just because it did kind of uh, coalesce and energize suburban Democratic voters. And I think it's also important. Um, we can talk about the two candidates in just a bit, but Jeff Jackson is is a star in the Democratic yeah, Party. Absolutely, uh, he has a tremendous base in Charlotte. Um, he draws huge crowds. For Pat Harrigan, you know, he's running up against tough demographics, but he's also running against a really tough opponent. Yeah, I mean, I don't think this is going to even if uh, Jeff Jackson wins, I don't think this is going to be his final destination. I think he's got his eye on Senate. Uh, Governor, maybe president. I mean, who knows? But I, I think it's going to be tough for Harrigan because he's trying to sound like both a, a Republican and a Republican who's reasonable. I mean, and I think, for example, when we talked to him, he talked about immigration. He took both the Trump position on build the wall, but he also took the Democratic, what's perceived as a Democratic position, you know, a pathway to citizenship. Let's let we need the workers. So It'd be interesting whether he's, you know, he has, he could turn off some Republicans that way, but he could interest some Democrats. I think, I think the biggest problem for him is in this district, I think his views on guns and abortion will just not wash. And, uh, 
I think I think that's Jeff Jackson's strong points. I agree with you. After the Dobbs decision, the the talk of a red wave started to recede. It's going back up a little bit now, but I think it's uh, it's not going to be what it what what people thought it was. Yeah, I think uh, I think Pat Harrigan. Um, you know, he is playing the long game. I, the, he jumped in this race initially when this 14th congressional district looked differently. It included at that time only a part of Mecklenburg County. It, it was a true toss up 50 50 seat. This is the one that uh, Madison Cawthorn right. was going. I don't even know if it was called the 14th then, but Madison right. Cawthorn was going to run here. Pat Harrigan was recruited for this race. Then all of a sudden it gets shifted again. And you know, now the numbers aren't working so much. So I think Harrigan has a real future in terms of the Republican Party in a more conservative district. I mean, the, the, the gun issue is going to be a problem. That is a really weak spot to win in an urban seat like Mecklenburg County. I think on election night, Republicans are going to, uh, including Harrington, are going to be looking as much at the Supreme Court vote as they are at this, uh, the vote in the 14th district. Because if the Republicans win a majority on the Supreme Court, that sort of opens the door for the legislature next year to to uh, redraw the map and have a much more Republican-friendly 14th district. So that may prompt Harrigan to get back in next time. But, I mean, you know this better than me, but isn't Tim Moore, the House Speaker, also looking at this uh, district as a possibility to get a ticket to Washington? That's right. Point? Tim Moore first said when Madison Cawthorn said he was going to run, Tim Moore said he didn't. Then the maps have changed. So you're right, Tim. Everything depends on the state Supreme Court and how much power Republicans have going in to 2023. So I, w- I will say this. I think that uh, Jeff Jackson uh, is starting to look over his shoulder a little bit. He's making a big deal about the residency issue. Uh, he seemed a little unnerved by this ad uh, from Harrigan, which was was kind of level 10 crazy. But I looked it up. Republicans all over the country are running this ad. I mean, yeah. And it is kind of a a Hail Mary pass. But what's interesting to me about this race is we're seeing the next generation. You know, we got people in Washington that are 80 years old in both parties. Here are two young, charismatic uh, guys who serve for their their country. And I think they both have a future, actually. This is Inside Politics, election 2022. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Steve Harrison, along with my colleague, Tim Funk. Jim Morrill is on vacation, but he will be joining us on the next episode as we get close to Election Day. Thanks so much for listening. 